please open God's Word to Acts, chapter 14. Acts 14, one more week in this dense, amazing chapter of this book. We're going to read the whole chapter again to get that big perspective and to see how God is at work in his church. So Acts 14, starting in verse 1, reading all the way to the end. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. 
And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are blessed with the privilege of having your word, being able to read it and understand it. We are also blessed that your spirit is at work, and we pray, God, that your spirit would work among us. Soften our heart to your word. Open our eyes that we may see what your word has to say. Help us to fear your name and so repent before you, to honor you with our lives as we see your gospel preached through your word. That we may rejoice in the hope we have in Christ, in the hope that we get to enjoy as a church. And may we love the church because we love the head of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off this morning with a simple but pretty important question. Uh, and I really just want to know this. What do you think about the church? What do you think about the church? How would you describe it to somebody? How would you talk about it? How would you uh, define it? What kind of images or feelings or emotions come to mind when you, when you think about the church? I think that for many people, the, the first thing that comes to mind when they think about the church is not necessarily the people, but it's the building, right? Maybe for you, it's, it's this smaller auditorium with old wooden pews and, and the pulpit up front and maybe even an organ in the corner. Probably not the majority of us here. <laughs> I think maybe for our culture, maybe the first thing we think about is, is more of the, the mall-like megachurch structure, right? With, complete with coffee shops and a library and lots of places to, to hang out and to fellowship together. Maybe you are maybe some of the only people in history that think of a school. <laughs> um, that, that's where we meet for church. I also wonder when, when church comes up, if people don't think of just the buildings, but they think of pastors, Maybe to you, it's this, this guy that's dressed up, has a, a low, meaningful voice, and just really likes to pray for a long time. Or maybe it's the opposite of that, and it's this, this goofy, young, youth pastor, hipster-type guy, uh, complete with skinny jeans and tattoos, who you're not sure who just wants to pray with you or play broom hockey. It's got to be somewhere in between there, probably. Maybe for you, when you think of the church, the first thing that come, comes to mind is, is mistrust, Maybe in your mind, you're, you're immediately going to the ways in which the church has, has hurt you, has betrayed you, or maybe has hurt somebody you love. And when you hear about the church, you're like, no, don't go there. It's full of hypocrites. They're just after your money. They say they'll care for you and they'll be there, but when, when things really get tough, they'll bail. I think for some, the church can even be this kind of outdated obsolete institution, right? Just kind of this, it, it had its importance in society a long time ago, but now it's just, it's just filled with stubborn old people who want to sing and pray and, and read and do weird stuff like that, right? It's just this useless, boring institution with outdated traditions. I mean, they actually believe that there's only one way to be saved, and they hold on to this holy book like it has all the answers. And some people knowing that that's the belief out there, want to redefine the church, reinvent the church, 
These are the people that say, you know what, we don't need to go to church. We don't need to, to preach the word, to pray together, to, to sing songs together, to take the Lord's Supper together. No, 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 let's not go to church. Let's be the church. So we don't need corporate worship. Let's just go serve on Sunday. Let's just go hand out food to the homeless and, and care for people. Let's just be incarnational, all about mercy ministry. And please don't misunderstand me. I, I love mercy ministry. I'm a foster parent, been one for a while. It has its place, but is that essentially what the church is? Is that all it is? I think for most people, when they think about the church in our American culture, the first thing that comes to mind is it's just a product to be consumed. The church exists primarily and ultimately to meet my felt needs. And so I'll just go whenever I want. I'll go whenever I need to pick me up, whenever I need an encouraging word. Whenever I'm feeling bad about myself, I can always go to the church and see people that are way more messed up than me. I'll go to give my kids kind of this moral compass so they have something to guide them. Or I'll go when things are really rough. When death comes, when tragedy comes, when my family's split, I need help financially. No, the church is not, it's just there when I need it, kind of like insurance. Church is there for me, to serve me, not me to serve the church. And I know there are probably way more ideas about the church that I missed But can we at least agree that most of what we hear about the church and see of the church in our world is just not good? Even as Christians, we can sometimes think the church is better in theory than in practice. We can read the word and be amazed by what the the Bible says the church looks like, and then we get involved in the church, in a local congregation, and it's ugly and difficult and painful. And we can even start to believe the lies of the world that the church is just a lost cause. It's irrelevant. It's obsolete. It's just broken beyond repair. And anybody who commits themselves to the church, who sacrifices for the church, is a fool. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know where I'm going with this. This is the way the world thinks. We've been looking at Acts through this perspective in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, For the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And if the gospel is foolishness, then everything we do in response to the gospel is foolishness to the world around us. And that includes being involved in a local church. But to us, the church who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, God doesn't mind playing the fool. He doesn't mind being the underdog because when, when his people win, he gets the glory. God likes to use what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God will play the fool all day long. Because at the end of the day, he gets the glory and victory. That's what it's always been about. And we see this all throughout Scripture, but we especially see it in Acts 14. And that's why we spent three weeks now, including this week, talking about this. And the focus over these last three weeks have been the power of God in foolish gospel ministry. The power of God in foolish gospel ministry. In the first week, we talked about foolish preaching 
And then last week we talked about foolish suffering, and you probably figured this out already, but this week the focus is the power of God to save through the foolish church. The power of God to save through the foolish church. So first we're going to talk about how, how the church looks foolish in the eyes of the world. And secondly, we're going to talk about what, what Paul and Barnabas believe about the church, what motivates them and commits them so much to this church. And then lastly, and most importantly, we'll talk about how God uses his foolish church in Acts and in our own lives. So first, let's talk about what makes the church seem foolish. And it's kind of funny because we already have an answer to this, don't we? We've spent weeks talking about foolish preaching, and, and we know that the gospel is foolishness to the world, the gospel of a crucified Savior, of a, light, of a God that brings life through death, of a blue-collar worker, a carpenter hanging on the cross to save the world. That's ridiculous to our world. And everything we do in response to that gospel is ridiculous to our world. So when you preach that, that will divide people. That will cause problems, and we've seen that happen. And anybody that's committed to that preaching is just crazy to our world. But not only that, we saw in this chapter that not only are they committed to preaching, they're committed to, after the preaching, to suffer with the church. They are bold enough to actually stick around when there's division and to invest their lives in the church and to even take on the persecution of the church. And they're crazy enough to believe that that suffering, that persecution is actually even good for them that it becomes something that develops them and sanctifies them and makes them more like Jesus. And it even declares the gospel to the lost and dying world. Well, the world thinks we're foolish for what we do, but they also think we're foolish for who we are. That's the thing, is that the world doesn't think that they just do foolish things. The world thinks the church is full of fools. And that's what we need to look at first. Let's look at this foolish church from the top down. And to do that, we actually have to go one chapter back. So turn one page over to Acts 13, probably. And we need to start with the leaders of the church. Let's look at the, the foolish shepherds. Paul and Barnabas have been the main focus of this entire chapter. So let's remind ourselves where they came from and what their church was like back in Antioch. So in 13.1, let's read this, this verse together. 13.1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, at first, this, this list seems harmless, but if we really realized who these men were, we would be shocked that they're working together. We would be shocked that they're even in the same room together. I mean, let's look a little deeper at this list. Barnabas has been the focus for us, and Barnabas is probably the best guy in the group. He has the best reputation. If you remember, we learned about him in Acts 4 when he sold property and laid it at the disciples' feet. said, this is for the church. Since the beginning, he's been given his life, giving his possessions to care for the church. He even left the church in Antioch to go on the mission field with, with Paul and to suffer for the name of Christ. But even Barnabas is not squeaky clean. We'll find out in Acts 15 that, that Barnabas actually sided with Peter when they were trying to sneak law back into the gospel. The gospel that Barnabas and Paul preached among the Gentiles. So he's got a little bit of a rough side to him too. But look at the next group. Simeon, called Niger. Now we don't know much about him, but his, 
His name, Niger, is Latin for black. He's probably from North Africa. Same with Lucius of Cyrene, probably also from Africa. So already we have a Jew, Barnabas, Hellenistic Jew, in the room with Gentiles, with people that they don't get along with. Not a good start for the church. And then Menean, who we would know nothing about, pretty much. Except Luke gives us this little line that would not be a good thing to do if you were trying to look good in public. <laughs> he says he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Not if you remember who the Herods are, but they were not good news. That family was a disaster. Right? If they were on Ancestry.com, they're not going to be on there long because there's nothing good to see. Right? It's a mess. The first Herod we learn about is Herod the Great. And if you remember him in the Christmas story, he's the one who the, the wise men went away from and they didn't come back to tell him that they found the Messiah. And so how does he respond? He kills off all the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's what he does to preserve his throne, to preserve his kingdom. Not only that, he killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his second wife for the same reason. You thought your family was bad. Right, And his son, Herod the Tetrarch, is what we're talking about here. His son, not much better, Herod Antipas, married his stepbrother's ex-wife. Talk about awkward at the family reunion, right? Married his stepbrother's ex-wife. And then one night they were having a party and having people over, and, and his stepdaughter comes out and does this like sultry dance, and he's so filled with lust over his stepdaughter that he says, I will give you anything you want. And she's a gem. So she says, you know what? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Talk about depravity. And Luke says, Menean is a lifelong, at least childhood friend with this guy. This is the family that influenced his childhood. You're scared about your kids hanging out with people. What about this guy? Right? That's, the, that's like a scandal waiting to happen for a pastor. It's not good news. And then lastly on this list is Saul. Lastly, and, and in one sense, least qualified to be a pastor. I mean, while, while Barnabas was given his life and his resources to build the church up, Paul was using his life and his resources to rip the church apart. We find out in Acts 8 that he's there when Stephen is stoned, being a part of it. And then in Acts 9, he takes his persecution on the road, pulling families from their home, putting them in jail, and persecuting them. And he would have still been doing it had God not knocked him off his horse and blinded him and saved him. Here's the amazing thing. It's very likely, because Barnabas was in Jerusalem at that time, that Barnabas knew the people that Saul was going after. He knew the families that Saul was ripping apart. And you know how that works in our world, Right? I'll bet you've been angry with people that you don't even know. You've held a grudge on somebody because they've been horrible to somebody you know. Right? Just how do you feel about that guy? Well, I hate that guy. When you know him, nobody, I know somebody that he hurt. Could you imagine that Paul and Barnabas were not just enemies from this, but they were actually ministry partners? They were the hope of this church. These are the men that God brought together with all these different backgrounds and ages and issues. These are the men that were trained from birth to hate each other, to, to look down on each other and despise one another, and this is the hope of the Gentiles? You know, the only way you'll see a group this diverse in our world is on some cheesy reality show. And you know why, right? Because they know that if you put a group this messed up together, there's going to be drama. 
It's going to be good TV, but it's not going to make for a good church <laughs> in most cases. So the world sees that as, as foolishness. Why would this church even exist? Why would this church even move forward? But this is the church that Paul and Barnabas are from. And let's turn to Acts 14 now and look at the churches that Paul and Barnabas even start. Not only do they come from what seems to be a foolish church in the eyes of the world, look at the churches they begin in these two towns. Acts 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now it's been a while since we've talked about Iconium, so let me refresh your memory. This town is, is extremely culturally diverse. It's mostly Gentile, mostly Greeks, but there's a synagogue there, right? There's Jews there, and so this town is already mixed like that, and it's, it's kind of the middle-of-the-road, middle-class type of town. It's not like Athens, which we'll see in, in uh, chapter 17 of Acts. It's more of like blue-collar, middle-of-the-road kind of place. I was trying to think of some comparison, so if you think of Silicon Valley as kind of the Athens of our state, then Iconium would be a lot like Bakersfield. And Fresno, like the Central Valley. Some educated, some not as educated, but pretty well off, pretty decent people. Seems like a good place for a church, right? Maybe not. Look what he says in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews believed and Gentiles hated them. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. That's, isn't that what you would expect? That when, when Paul preaches the gospel, we know it's going to be division. So that when division happens, it'll be Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. I mean, remember, these people have always hated each other. They don't do politics together. They don't do business together. They, they would cross the street and walk on the other side of the road just to get away from each other. The Jews especially saw the, the Gentiles as just this godless, unclean people who they didn't want to be um, messed up by. And you can imagine how well the Gentiles felt about that belief. So these are not the groups you want to be together. But when Paul preaches the gospel, what does it say? Spoke in such a way that both Jews and Greeks believed. Uh-oh. That's not supposed to happen. Right? A new church is born, which is a great thing, but this church begins with lifelong enemies. This church begins with people that have hated each other. The church in Iconium starts already culturally divided. How do you think that's going to go? Well, we, we never have problems because of culture and race in our world, do we? It's like everything you see on the news. And that's the way this church in Iconium begins. And that's crazy to our outside world. That's foolishness. That's almost as bad as the church in Antioch. But what about the next church they start in verse 8 in Lystra? Let's look at this church. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. This is verse 8. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. Now, let's stop there for a second. Paul is preaching here, but where is he preaching? Did you notice something missing? This is the first time in the book of Acts that Paul and Barnabas haven't gone into the synagogue. He's probably out on the street where this lame man is preaching the gospel, which doesn't mean that there's no Jews there. By the way, we find out later that this is Timothy's hometown, and Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. 
So that's probably what this town looks like. It's a lot of mixture of Jews and Greeks, but there seems to be no synagogue there. Maybe that's a good thing. There's not this Jew-Gentile conflict in the city that will cause the same mess in Iconium and, and elsewhere. Maybe this is a great way to start a church. Verse 11. Paul does this miracle, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. Well, there's, there's no Jew and Gentile convert but, or conflict, but, but now we have something that's maybe even worse. Now we just have full-blown pagan idolatry. And this just confirms the reputation that this town already had. I don't know if I've mentioned this before in a couple weeks ago, but, but Iconium was kind of the middle of the class type of place. Lystra was about as low as you can get. It's this kind of rustic, uncivilized, backwater type of place. It became a, a Roman colony in 6 BC and it was so tiny, you could barely even say it was a small village. I mean, if, if Iconium is like Bakersfield and, and Fresno, then maybe Lystra would be more like Taft? <laughs> I was trying to think of some comparison here. I mean, Kevin DeYoung says, think of the tow truck Mater. Right? Pixar wanted to come up with their, their view of what makes the symbol of unsophistication and, and unintelligent people, and they came up with Mater. Apologize if you speak like that. That didn't mean to offend you, but this is the type of people in this town, in a way. Not the people you'd be going after to bring into your church. Fools in the eyes of the world. Plus, they're devoted to this Greek mythology. When Paul does one little thing, he, they just automatically blend that right into their worldview. Seems like they'll just worship anything that moves. And at the end of this chapter, there's a church in this town. I'm not sure which one's worse. A town that, that is, or excuse me, a church that exists in conflict that has this lifelong battle of Jew and Gentile or a church that just worships everything that moves. These are the type of churches that people avoid, right? I'm not going there. There's a whole host of issues that I just don't want to be a part of. Pastors even would avoid, no, 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 I'm going to be doing counseling all day long, right? Maybe Jason would like that, but other pastors say, no, I'm running from that kind of church. But Paul and Barnabas are committed to these foolish churches, they're not just interested in reaching the, the well-educated or the prosperous. They don't just want to go into a church that just, has, just comes together nice and easy and has no conflict. They seem to be okay with welcoming fools into their church in the eyes of the world. Now here's the amazing part about this. To the world, this already looks like a train wreck. But in some ways, Paul and Barnabas being there might make these churches stand a chance. I mean, after all, Paul and Barnabas have their past. They have issues, but they were doing okay in Antioch. The church was growing. It seemed like it was doing great. And so as long as Paul and Barnabas are around, everything will be okay, right? The only problem is every time the ministry gets going, what happens to Paul and Barnabas? They keep getting run out of town, right? They keep getting kicked out of town, and they have to leave these young, foolish churches. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do to make sure the churches will be okay? Let's look at verse 21 and find out. 
when they preached the gospel to the city, had made many disciples, that's in Derby. they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the three young churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then check this out. This is part of their encouragement, part of their way of strengthening the church. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. Wait, Paul, Paul thought it was a good idea to raise up people from among this church? You expect to say, hey, we're going to send some, some wise elders from other churches to come and help you guys because it's just not looking good here. And guys, remember, this, this missionary journey probably took anywhere from between one and two years, which means Paul and Barnabas were at this church, at some of these churches, maybe just a couple months. Now, I know some of you, especially you dads, you wouldn't let your daughter date somebody that, he, that they knew for just a couple months. Right? There's no way that's going to happen in your mind. Yet Paul is willing to trust the church, entrust the church to these, these foolish people in the eyes of the world, knowing where they came from, knowing their idolatry, knowing their division in their past. I mean, wasn't Paul the one that told Timothy, don't be too hasty in the laying on of hands? Well, Paul, you need to follow your own advice here. And the question comes up, well, why would Paul take such a risk on the church? And I have three Three answers for you. Well, one answer and two speculations. <laughs> should put it that way. But because the answer I'm going to give you, you're not going to like. We don't know. We, we don't know why Paul would take such a risk on this church like this. We, we really don't. We don't know all the reasons. We don't know all the circumstances. We don't know the discussion or what went into this thought. But this is what he did. We do know this, that, that this is an apostle. Apostle Paul, who wrote the qualifications of an elder, by the way. So if anybody can qualify an elder, it's got to be Paul. And he is an apostle. He, he has the right to do this type of thing. This is not something that we, we just want to follow along with. So the recommendation here is that we don't look at this like this is the way you approach elders at your church. Hey, yeah, you've been around for a couple months. Come become an elder. It's not the way that Paul is trying to tell us to do this. We have to be careful with this in Acts, too, because remember, Chad's talked about this a lot. We can't just put ourselves into the story. We can't just assume that this, this book is just telling us how to live. Sometimes Luke is just trying to be descriptive, just trying to tell us what happened, and he's doing that here. He's not trying to be prescriptive, not trying to tell us what to do. If you want prescription for elders, look to the letters to the pastors that Paul wrote. But we also know one more thing, that Paul and Barnabas were on the run. I mean, Paul is coming back to these cities after he was stoned nearly to death. It's, it's just highly likely that they couldn't stick around. They just had to do something to encourage the church and to strengthen the church. And the best thing they thought to do was to, to make elders. This kind of thing happens in the mission world. It might happen to some of our missionaries. It happened in China. The church began, it grew, the missionaries were kicked out. They were kicked out and the church was brand new, it seemed like. And then when they come back years later, the church was thriving. So sometimes these decisions just have to be made. And here's the thing. Even though we don't know the reasons for their decision, we do know where their trust was. This is the main purpose of this entire text. Look at verse 23. 
when they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, this shows that Paul didn't think this was a foolish decision. Paul entrusted all of it to the Lord. Yes, they're young Christians. Yes, this is a young church. Yes, they're from rough places, but it's in God's hands. And look, don't look at this as kind of this this flippant, well, we did the best we could, Lord, here you go. No, Paul is showing us there's a lot more going on here. Paul actually believes that this is God's church. He's the one doing it, and he's the one in charge. And I want to show you that Paul believes that, so keep your finger in Acts and turn to Ephesians 2. We've seen that the church looks foolish to the outside world. Now let's, let's look at what Paul believes about the church. Why would he be so committed to what seems to be a foolish church? He must believe something that's so much different than what the world believes. Ephesians 2 verse 11. And actually I need to say this too up front is that Paul talks about the church a lot, if you didn't notice that. He talks about it in every single letter multiple times, but one of Paul's favorite ways to talk about the church is with metaphors, images. I have a book at home that said there's 93 metaphors in the, for the church in the New Testament alone. Like the light of the world, the vine, and army. And most of those are from Paul. And there's, there's one book in particular that he just saturates with images of the church, and it's Ephesians. So I just want to take you in this brief, very brief survey of what Paul thinks of the church to get an idea of what was fueling this kind of ministry to this foolish church. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. This is right after he laid out the gospel. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Isn't that the perfect picture of these towns and acts? Mostly Gentile, lost in pagan idolatry, suffering under this Jew and Gentile division, apart from God, apart from the covenants, apart from all that we know is true. It's just like us too, by the way. That's the situation. And verse 13, but now, in Christ You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both Jew Gentile and has both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man. There's the first image right there. One new man. Pay attention to all the ones in this passage. He's going to go back to that a lot. One new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. There's image number two. In fact, this is the image that only Paul uses. Do you know that? He calls the church a body. One body in Christ. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. That's Jew, Gentile, 
Lyconians and Lystra and Iconium and Bakersfield, that's all of us. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. There's image number three. Members of the household of God, image number four. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's the fifth image already for the church. And I hope you see Paul's point in this passage is that the church is made up of so many diverse people. Jew and Gentile foolish and wise, those who want to keep the law and those who can't care about the law less. It's full of people that are disasters and full of people that look good in the eyes of the world. It's full of natural enemies and people that even get along. And the one thing that everybody has in common in the church is that we're all dead in our sin. That's how we come to the church. That's what makes us united in the first place. But then Paul says, as diverse as the church is, As messed up as they are, they are now one. They're one in Christ. They're one because Christ is the, or the church is one body, one man, one household, one temple. And Christ is the head of the body, the cornerstone of that temple. He's the means by which we are saved and united to our Father who created us and united to each other. And this means that the church is the place where it doesn't matter how messed up you were before. It doesn't matter how the place you were before, the darkness that you came from before. Our sin and our our past is, is dropped at the foot of Jesus. And we celebrate that together. One of the biggest lies that people believe in our world is that I'm too messed up. I'm too broken, I'm too sinful, I'm, I'm too far gone for God to, to love me and to use me and to, to be a part of his people. There's no way I would go into church. I would be struck by lightning if I entered into a church. Have you said that or heard people say that? And I can, I can realize in, in a way that how you would feel like that after seeing even my own sin and, and realizing that that burden is on us, but I need to lovingly tell you to get over yourself. Really, you're not even that good at sinning. Really. There, there are people in these towns, there are people in this church who, who would laugh at what you think is too far. I mean, we have a messed up church in, in Antioch. We have a messed up church in Lystra and Iconium. And Sovereign Grace, as beautiful as it can be sometimes, is still messed up. It's full of sinners. But we are all one in Christ. And here's the thing, is that it's not that Paul believes that the church is just this place where a bunch of messed up people come to be messed up together. It's not come as you are and stay as you are. We'll just be all sinners just joining together in our sin. No, Paul doesn't believe that either. There's a diversity and a unity in the church, and there's a holiness in the church too. Turn to Ephesians 5. I love this, that Paul, in the middle of his exhortation to husbands and wives, he says, you know what a marriage looks like? You know why God made marriage? To show the relationship between Christ and the church. And Paul uses another image, the church as a bride, to teach us that it's not just about unity, it's about holiness as well. Verse 25 in chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ Loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
there's the image that the, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus gave himself for the church. He died for the church. He freed the church of sin and bondage, but he didn't just stop there. He didn't just free us from guilt, free us from sin, and loosen the change, chains that we have on our, on our lives. He actually came to sanctify the church. Verse 26, that he may, might sanctify her, make the church holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Another way to say purifying, making her holy, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's the end of the church. There's where it's, it's all headed. Oh, I know some days when you look at the church, all you can really see is how ugly the bride can be. The difficulty, the struggle, the division in the church. But this is where it's all headed. To an outside world that looks like a disaster, but God is at work in the sinfulness, in the difficulty, refining us, purifying the church. And Jesus that died for the church is Jesus that will sanctify the church. The church belongs to Jesus, bought with his own blood. Paul knows this, and he knows that he's just gathering the bride. He's just gathering the body together. That's what fuels Paul's ministry. As foolish as that looks to the world, Paul knows it's all part of what God's doing. And we see that in Acts 14. It's not just wishful thinking on Paul that, oh man, it looks really messed up now, but God's not doing this. No, we actually see God's hand at work in Acts 14. So flip back to Acts 14 if you're not, not there right now. We've seen the foolish church in the eyes of the world. We've seen Paul's belief that the church is not foolish. It has this beautiful unity and diversity that's all leading to holiness. But we also need to see that God is the one building his church. We'll see how God uses his foolish church. And this is going to be kind of weird. We're actually going to have to go backwards through this text in a weird way. So go all the way to the end of chapter 14 because we need to see where it ends. We need to see what God did so we can go back and see how he did it. So chapter 14, verse 27. Verse 27 in chapter 14. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, that's Paul and Barnabas back in Antioch after all the mission is done, they declared all that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened door of faith to the Gentiles. Do you imagine what a blessing that must have been for this church? Now, honestly, I can tell you, I've reading this text, thinking of this text, dreaming and hoping and praying for the day that we might hear something like that from this pulpit. As we send out missionaries into the world to suffer, to go through what Paul and Barnabas went through, that we might one day see God open the door of faith to a new people group. And we can rejoice into that. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, God did this. God built his church. God's the one that opened the door. But here's the thing. When I look at Acts 14, all I see is Paul and Barnabas. Paul's the one preaching. Paul and Barnabas are the ones suffering. Paul and Barnabas are the ones making all the sacrifice. How can they say that God did all this? 
Well, you might argue, say, well, God's the one that saved them. God's the one that brought the faith, and I'll give you that. But there's more to it in this text. We can see the hand of God. It's subtle, but it's there. Look up to verse 8. In this miracle, this, this event that just gets passed over so fast because of all the Zeus and Hermes madness, this miracle, Luke is trying to point to something so much greater. Verse 8, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Pay attention to how this man is described. He could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. Said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now we have to remember that miracles and acts aren't just cool little magic tricks. We've been seeing a lot of those, but remember, miracles are signs. Signs point to something. They point to the gospel that's being preached here. This is a, an illustration in a sermon for Paul. They're pointing to the gospel. They're pointing to the messengers that God is with them and God is using them. But they're also pointing to that this is Jesus at work. Jesus is the one doing the ministry here. As we learned in the very beginning of Acts, Jesus did all those things in Luke, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's doing more. Look up to verse 3. This is what happened in Iconium. It's even clearer in some ways here that God's the one doing this. They remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. God bore witness to the word of his grace to his gospel by doing what? Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God was at work here, showing the signs and wonders to show he was at work. Here's my question. Why don't we know about those? Luke says signs, plural, there were signs and wonders that happened in Iconium that we just don't know about. Why would Luke take time to point out the one in Lystra? This healing of a lame man, the only sign, and it just gets passed over because of all the Zeus and Hermes nonsense. Why would Luke be so particular on this? Well, if you've been here a while and you remember the preaching earlier in Acts, and you have a really good memory and you're very careful at paying attention, you might think that this sounds familiar. Turn to Acts 3. Turn to Acts 3. This is something that happened in the early church that you need to see. Luke is making a clear connection here in Acts 3. This is after Pentecost, after the church just exploded in size and was growing and doing these amazing things, and the apostles were doing work in Jerusalem. Look at what Peter and John do at the temple. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And a man lame from birth, sound familiar, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked to receive alms. And look what Peter does. It's so similar to what Paul does. And Peter directed his gaze at him. Same type of wording in Greek, as did John, and said, look at us. In Acts 14, Paul says, he looked, or Luke says, Paul looked intently at the man, saw that he had faith, and Peter says, look at us. 
He fixed his attention on him, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, or what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And listen to this description of this man that was healed. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Luke's trying to make a clear connection between what Peter and John did in the temple and what Paul is trying to do. What's the connection? Well, if you remember way back in Acts 3 that this description, and even in Acts 14, they're shadows. They're actually a picture that we already knew about. It's a picture of the kingdom coming into this world, breaking into this world that we hear about in Isaiah. It's the passage that Jason read this morning. Let me read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah 35. As the water breaks forth in the desert, the people that are lost and separated from God are finally saved. Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then check this out. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. This text is all about the Messiah coming and bringing his kingdom. It's all about God's work among the nations, among this world, gathering his people together, reversing the effects of the fall, setting everything that's been messed up by sin and death in our culture. Luke's trying to make the connection that you know the ministry that happened in Jerusalem, how God's kingdom came to Jerusalem. Well, now God's kingdom's coming to the Gentiles. He's reaching the nations. Rejoice with us. And that's why he says at the end, God is the one who opened the door to the Gentiles. This is God's church. This is God who's the builder. It's his kingdom. Do you know that when the kingdom's talked about in Scripture, it's, it's always talked about with verbs that are in the passive we receive the kingdom. We, we are brought into the kingdom. It's never calling us to build the kingdom. You know why? Because God's the builder. God's the one building his kingdom. God's the one building his church, and that means it can't fail. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think of how amazing that statement is. In the face of the Roman Empire, Jesus said that. I mean, you can go to Rome today and drive on streets that were built during the Roman Empire. We have sidewalks that don't last a month, and they, they have streets and things that are still standing. But Rome will come and go. America will come and go. Powerful, influential leaders will come and go. But this measly little church that starts off culturally divided that starts off with these people that will worship everything that moves, that starts off with broken, sinful individuals that come together because they're broken and sinful, that is the institution that will last? Yeah, because Jesus is the one to build his church. Jesus is the one to gather his people. He is the head 
of his church, his body, which he's gathering from all the nations. He is the cornerstone of the holy temple he's building from sinful people. He is the husband who will come one day to set everything right and to gather up his bride in holiness. Jesus is the one to build his church. God's mission to save the world is the church. And the only question for us is, are we willing to be a part of that? Are we willing to, to look foolish in the eyes of the world? Are we willing to get into the sinfulness and the mess of the church, to make sacrifices for the church, to commit our lives to the church, knowing that and trusting that God will work through that, that it's God's church and he will save and sanctify people through it? You may say, well, what if I get hurt? What if I dive in and it just becomes a mess? Well, let me just guarantee you something up front, and you will hear this in the pastor's coffee. If you stick to a church... If you commit to a church, we will disappoint you. There are people here that can testify to that. We will. We'll drop the ball at some point, but God is the builder of his church. And that's why we relentlessly point you to Jesus. Because he will never disappoint. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. He's the one we look to in faith, and he will build his church. You know, in the first, well, a few centuries after the church began, a few centuries, a few years after the church began, there was a story circulating in the church. It was just a mythical story, so don't, don't pick up any stones to throw at me here. It's not scripture, but it's this mythical story that, that was circulated that has a really interesting point. And it goes like this. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he ascended, he left his disciples, and we see that at the beginning of, of Acts and at the end of the Gospels. He ascended to heaven, and this angel approached him. And said, Lord, what is your strategy for this world? And Jesus turned around and pointed to the 11 disciples he had left. He pointed to all their friends and family, which only totaled to be about 120 people at the day of Pentecost. And he said, that is my strategy. And the angel turned to him with horror in his, in his face and said, Lord Jesus, what is your second strategy? Jesus said, there is no second strategy. He said, I, even with these, even with us, will build my church. Even in Bakersfield. Even to the ends of the earth. Because God will show his power to save even through a foolish church. Let's pray. Father, what glorious truth that we rejoice in, that you are gracious enough to send your son while we were in our sinfulness, lost and separated from you, lawbreakers, not only to save us, but to unite us to a people of God, to bring us into the family of God, into your body under Christ, knowing that we can rejoice together and be sanctified together in the church. God, may we rejoice in that hope. May we learn to love your bride, to love your church, because you are at work here, and you will be faithful to the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.